Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woohoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump day! Woohoo! <laughs> hump day. Hump day! Woohoo! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Donaldson Files, the Wednesday edition. It's hump day here on the Donaldson Files. And just to let you know, Next week, we begin a new adventure in broadcast excellence. We're going to be switching over to StreamYard.com, which basically means you can do audio, we can do video, you can see what we actually look like as we broadcast to you. I guess that means I'm going to have to find a different room than what I presently use, which happens to be my in my daughter's room. Uh, she hasn't lived here in a while, but let's, let's be, you know, like I said, we have all kinds of things to remind you that obviously... It's my daughter's room, which includes penguins, Scooby-Doo, and various acts of the rock acts of the past 30 years. Uh, so, but next week, we're going to do, say, StreamYard.com, so we'll be switching over to that. For more information, at Donaldson Files on Getter, Donaldson Files on Parlor, Donaldson Files on Twitter, and also DonaldsonTFiles.com for more information. Also, the Resistance Hour, which will follow this show, is also going to be following through. And don't forget that this portion, this entire program is brought to you by my latest book, America at the Abyss, Will America Survive, which I detail the trends of the past four years and going into the future. And we talk about the, the collapse of the leadership class, some of the, you know, what's going to happen if the trajectory that we have doesn't change. But also, we give some ideas on how to move forward in the future. And I might add, I, I have joining me tonight, John Hinderacker of the Center for American Experiment. At the bottom of the hour, Dr. Larry is going to be joining the conversation with us. And I want to just uh, say you can get my you can my book will be available February the seventh. You can pre-order it on Amazon.com. You can pre-order it on BarnesandNoble.com. Liberty Hill Press Publishing.com, which is association, which is associated with Salem Media. So, all of those, so you you can get it available. And I want to just add uh, is that uh, John Hinderacker actually produced some of the data that you're going to see in the book, dealing with the economic side of the equation. So, I want you know in advance, I will be asking. You know, thank you, John for allowing me to use your staff for some of the research for a project we did a couple of years ago, and it is included in the book. And welcome to the program, John, and tell very briefly something about yourself, what you're doing presently. Well, uh, thank you, Tom, and, and uh, I'm glad to hear that, that uh, the data is going to be in the book. Um, so I'm the president of Center of the American Experiment, which is a policy organization and activist organization in Minnesota, primarily, although we also uh, have been doing work in other states um, more recently. 
And uh, in addition, I am uh, a co-founder of the website Powerline, where I write every single day something something of interest on the news. Yeah, yeah. Before we get into the because based off right, John, because first of all, to begin talking about uh, you know tech censorship, because about a year ago you kind of designed what I would call a pretty good set of rules or laws which states could you actually use to basically begin the process of keeping these tech giants from controlling the narrative. And, and so well, first of all, tell us about, you know, briefly about what you were trying to do a year and what progress of any is being done on yeah. a state level. So, so a lot of people have been concerned about the, the left-wing bias on the part of the social media and tech companies that really have come to dominate the public square in terms of uh, conversation about current events in the United States. And, um, and, and people have come up with different ideas, uh, whether it's try to break up, you know, Facebook, Twitter at all under the antitrust laws or, you know, various other options, uh, most of which seem to be to have really serious um, problems. The the solution that I came up with, which I continue to think is the best approach, is a is a state based solution. I don't think there's a good uh, well, there could be a good federal solution, but it's not going to happen with anything like the current political alignment. So, so so my idea is is for states to pass legislation that bans discrimination in the moderation of uh, tech and social media sites. The thing you always bump up against if if you try to talk to Facebook or or Twitter or or Google or whoever YouTube about discriminating against conservatives is they are private companies and they don't have to the First Amendment does not apply to them and that's true that's that's absolutely correct First Amendment um, you know in principle does not apply to uh, private companies. So obviously, if they're doing the bidding of the government, that's another issue. Sometimes I think they are. Then you then you could get a different answer. But in general, the the position of those companies that they need to moderate content for the base for the benefit of user experience. You know that's true too. And so and so a lot of the approaches that people have tried kind of run into a stone wall. And so I actually drafted a statute, and what it does is it defines a certain universe of tech companies based on number of subscribers, and it bans discrimination in the moderation of of user content on the basis of race, sex, religion, or political orientation. And it creates a private cause of action on behalf of anyone so discriminated against with a statutory remedy of $50,000 plus any provable actual damages and attorney's fees. And so and so the law is self-executing in the sense that the government doesn't have to go out trying to try to enforce it if if individuals think they have been discriminated against, uh, they can bring a lawsuit just as in cases of employment discrimination or housing discrimination or or public accommodations discrimination that we're all familiar with. And so it, it provides a ready answer to the reflexive position taken by the tech companies. We're private companies. First Amendment doesn't apply to us, uh, and to which I say, fine. But, but nevertheless, there are various ways in which you can't discriminate in carrying out your, your private activities. And one of the ways under this statute that you cannot discriminate is 
in the moderation of user content. I think it's a it's an effective approach. I think if 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 a handful of of red states, especially some of the bigger red states like Texas and Florida, uh, Tennessee, um, if if they were to adopt this legislation, I, I think it would have a tremendous impact on on the left wing bias that we see in all these uh, these tech companies. We introduced it in the in the Minnesota House and the Minnesota Senate last year. And you got a hearing in the Senate, did not get a hearing in the House. We're going to introduce it again this year. I think there's a good chance it may pass the Minnesota Senate, which is Republican-controlled. I don't expect it to pass the, the Democrat-controlled Minnesota House. Uh, they're going to do everything they can to avoid having to take a vote on it. But my hope is that we can at least get a vote and, and get some of these representatives on record as not wanting to ban uh, race discrimination and sex discrimination and religious discrimination, as well as political discrimination. Yeah. Well, let me kind of follow up, though, because seriously, we talked about this before, what it does. I mean, you're basically saying, in effect, okay, if you discriminate against me based on my political, for example, if I put up a piece that says something that you don't like politically, you can't take it off. Uh, on the other side of the equation, you certainly are not stopping them from, let's say, pornography or human trafficking or anything like that. So you're giving them leeway on one side of the equation to do what normally editors would normally do under normal circumstances like newspapers or television would have well, that that's right, right. to do. Th- that's right. So the big tech companies hired three people to come in and testify in a hearing against my legislation in the in the Minnesota Senate and they they're, they're three different trade organizations that wrote letters and had witnesses testifying against it and what they said was well if this legislation passed we wouldn't be able to block terrorist activity and child pornography and I said well, why explain to me why you have to engage in race discrimination to block child pornography i mean it's ridiculous but that's their re- yeah. they don't have a good answer and so they just keep kind of coming up with the same platitudes over and over. Well, let me ask you this. Here's the other question, Kevin, because I'm, I'm of the opinion that there are really in many ways are acting on behalf of the agency of the government. They don't say it that way. It would be something hard to prove. But certainly there's a factor that you have to sit back and say it just seems like, you know, when uh, Gene Sasaki goes out and says, I'm in commu- we're in communications uh, with these individual misinformation i mean they obviously there's i guess that error of deniability but do you ever get the feeling that that indeed is happening that facebook and these groups are in fact acting on behalf of the biden administration it's kind of a fine line tom i mean there are a number of things going on now you're absolutely right jen uh Kataki said publicly oh yeah we're yeah. talking to these folks about so-called misinformation but but in addition to that, they'll have hearings and they'll summon the, the leaders of these companies in front of committees and berate them and demand that they take action against, uh, you know, so-called misinformation, et cetera. And, and so they're creating a situation where I think there's an open question whether these tech companies are, in fact, doing the bidding of uh, Democrats in Washington in suppressing conservative uh, news and information and commentary. And if that were the case, I think it clearly would violate the First Amendment. 
Yeah. But of course, the, you yeah. know, the, there's course. a huge proof issue there to try to get to the bottom of, yeah. of how that happens. Well, let me ask you. Let me put it this way: Is there a fine line between being a actual editor, acting as an editor, versus, for example, uh, like a National Review has an editorial policy? You on your you have an editorial policy doing you know with your magazine associated with the yeah the your think tank and so obviously you're going to have the ability to censor or not or just to say you know this article comes in this article will reject or you can go down the street to the nation versus let's say having a much more in the case of facebook uh you know when they act as editors when is that fine line crossed and because it seems to me if you're acting as an editor that's a totally different picture which totally different rules should apply uh, your thoughts? Well, the, 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 the social media platforms uh, want to be treated uh, for liability purposes like, like Internet service providers, like the, yeah. the, the, the companies that just hook you up to the Internet, you know, that just provide the, the link to the Internet. Yeah. And, and by law, the Internet service providers don't have any liability for the things that people post on the Internet. So I, I don't even know offhand who our ISP is at American Experiment. I don't, I don't know which company, you know, we use for that, for that function. But, you know, if, you, if somebody goes online and he posts, uh, you know, some terrorist thing or whatever that would give rise to liability on his part, you, you, can't, you can't go after the, the ISP. They, they don't, they don't, know what you're posting. They don't care what you're posting. They don't yeah. take any responsibility. They don't read it. They don't see it. They just furnish the wires and so on, you know. And, and so the tech companies, for liability purposes, they want to say, we're just like the ISPs. You know, we're, 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 we're just, you know, we're just passive. People post stuff on Facebook. People post stuff on Twitter. The problem is that they then turn around and say, well, of course, that doesn't mean people can post just anything because – for the sake of user experience, you know, we don't, you know, we we're a family site, you know, we and we're a good citizen, so we don't, you know, we don't want child pornography on our on our platform, so we have to we have to kick it off, right? And and um, and and we're good citizens, you know, we don't want people using our platform to propagate misinformation about uh, about voter fraud or misinformation about covid or misinformation about vaccines and so on so so you know they 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 obviously try to have it both ways and so far they've been pretty successful in getting it both ways yeah hold on to that thought this time Donaldson Donaldson Powell here on the Bachelor News Radio Network we're going to return here with John Hinderracker of the Center for American Experiment and also one of the writers and editors for Powerline blog which, by the way, is, in my view, is one of the best blogs out there. If you ever, you know, it's one of the ones I start every morning. I always read Powerline blog uh, with my morning coffee. This is Tom Donaldson here on the on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, next week we're going to be on StreamYard.com. Look for more information 
Uh, you can look on my Twitter site, Getter site, and uh, Parlor site at Donaldson Files for more information, DonaldsonTFiles.com. Also, the Resistance Hour will be joining us to going stream yard. They, they will be following this, which is the show I co-host following this. And also, uh, I do have my latest book, America the Abyss, where America survived. You know, I, as I state, I, I begin, is there a dark future if we continue on the current trajectory? But I also believe there's hope. And I do offer solutions, including, you know, expanding upon the new GOP coalition of rural Americas, uh, some urban centers, blue-collar workers, and combining the Trump populism with the classic conservatism. As I state, it may, in fact, be our salvation doing so. For more for more details, you can go to Liberty Hill Publishing, a division of Salem Media Company. We also will be available on Amazon.com. You can pre-order right now, Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com here. Uh, so... And be the first on your block to find the answer, will America survive by the book? Um, all right, let's go back to that point that you're now trying, I mean, you know, having it both ways. See, here's the problem. I, I got several problems here. Number one, if you're going to be, let's say, take misinformation, being a good citizen, what is misinformation? Because you just had, you know, Steve Haywood on your blog today, this morning, you know, just quoted a JAMA article dealing with myocarditis increases among the young, healthy males, which would indicate to me that maybe we should rethink vaccinating everybody under the age of 20, uh, for example, if we're going to have an increased side effect risk versus benefit. If If you and I would have put something on Twitter three months ago about we should not be automatically vaccinating healthy young males, we would be, you know, we would be classified misinformation. Here we are three months later, and you got one of the premier journals basically saying, uh, is there a risk versus benefit? So how do you define this misinformation, especially in the scientific community or in the political community where there's all kinds of ideas, you know, being advanced all the time with new data coming out? Who's, who's, who's the one that's drawing that line? Well, you know, our society is really based on the premise that um, there's no such thing as somebody being empowered to to define misinformation and ban discussion of it. You know, um, that that's antithetical to to not just the First Amendment, but, but the First Amendment embodies a societal value. You know, that goes back to the 17th century primarily and and the idea is that that uh, the, the way the way to to sound decisions and sound judgments is not for someone to decide right at the beginning you know what's true and what's not true and then shut off all conversation forever after uh, the idea is that you need to have ongoing discussion you need to have vigorous debate you need to have reconsideration as new facts come to light and you need to let people be heard because, you know, the fact is uh, you don't know what's right uh, when, you, when you start a conversation. And I think this COVID thing exemplifies that perfectly. You know, when, when some people started to say, wow, it's an amazing coincidence that this virus started in Wuhan, China, like 
you know, allegedly about a mile from where the Wuhan, Wuhan Institute of Virology was doing bat virus research. Well, that's, that's a coincidence. Maybe it escaped from the lab. And, oh, my gosh, you know, conspiracy theory. And if you said that on Twitter, you know, you'd, be, you'd get kicked off the platform. Well, now, as more information has, has come out and some of it you had, had to be dragged out kicking and screaming, well, now it seems pretty clear that that was, in fact, the source of the virus. And, in fact, it, it, it looks in all likelihood like the, the ultimate source of the virus was bat coronavirus research that did involve gain of function, as that term is normally defined, uh, that may have been funded by the United States government, in fact, by Dr. Fauci, right? That's looking like it's very likely true. So, so this is a classic example. And then, of course, your point about, about vaccination. There are adverse side effects to these vaccines, particularly in the very population, uh, that is young people, uh, for whom COVID is, is a, almost a zero threat. And so there's a very rational, logical discussion that should be had, and people need to make their own healthcare decisions about about what what risks they want to take. If I was a 19-year-old guy, my judgment would be I'd rather take the risk of COVID, which is probably going to be no worse than a cold for me, uh, as opposed to the, the the still really not very well understood risk of some heart condition that might result from the vaccine. So so you know you don't shut down these discussions before they before they get underway by declaring that one side is right and the other side is misinformation. But that's of course exactly what our social media platforms uh, and I think in part at the instigation of our government have have done. Well, let me take Paul because here's my again I'm going to go back to. Because I had this discussion a couple of weeks ago and was very spirited with a left who said, you know, the biggest problem we have is misinformation. I said, well, how do you define misinformation? I gave her a bunch of examples just with the coronavirus alone where you could just sit back and say, you know, what we were de- determined off base a year ago is now truth. And you've just given one good example, uh, two good examples, and certainly say they would, you know, follow through. And I guess my question to me, at that point, you're not acting as a good citizen. You're acting as an editor. Here's our position on this, which leads me to the, I guess, the part of the Internet, the 230, which basically, you know, the 230 is designed to protect, let's say, the Internet, as I understand it, from being liable for, let's say, if, for example, I go out on a tangent and decide – you know, become a neo-Nazi and whatever, you know, and come up with a bunch of, you know, you know, you know, nasty things said about the Jews, you know, the Internet's going to be held responsible. I'll be held responsible. Or if I declare we need to be having a revolution and start, you know, shooting cops, you know, I'd be the one held responsible, not the Internet. And and it seems to me that if I, you know, my, it seems to me that the problem you run into with this is that, they want, you know, they, they're trying to have it both ways. They really want to be editors in censoring ideas they don't approve of or they don't buy into. And why should they be given the same protection, let's say, of an Internet provider under those circumstances? Well, that's, exactly right. it, 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 that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act was intended to protect, and it was passed at a very early 
stage in the of the internet where these social media platforms didn't exist that nobody had really even come up with that idea yet and it was intended to protect the companies that are providing basically isp services uh getting people onto the internet uh from having to be responsible for you know all the content that that went on their wires it's it's very much like tom if you and i get on the telephone like we are right now and we plan a crime and we execute a crime well you can you can go after us. You can sue us, or you can criminally prosecute us. But you can't go after AT and T. AT and T doesn't censor our telephone conversation. It doesn't it doesn't listen in and 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 decide whether what we're talking about passes muster. It doesn't know that we are plotting a crime, and it doesn't have any responsibility to do those things. And so. And so, you know, it would be absurd for, for someone to say, oh, well, let's, let's, let's indict AT&T because somebody plotted a crime over the telephone. And, and so that's what, that's what Section 230 is all about, uh, trying to avoid that kind of burden being placed on, on tech companies. But, but, but to your point, Tom, when they undertake to be editors, and, and, but more than that, they undertake to be censors, to be censors, you know, they're not the editors decide what we're going to print, right? Like my organization right. has a quarterly magazine called Thinking Minnesota, and we have a publisher, we have a managing editor, and and we we you know we provide the content, we decide what we want to have in our magazine, we develop the content, and and we and we and we print it. Yeah. You know, that's what an editor does. Uh, but we're not talking about that here. We're not talking about about um, about Twitter deciding what Twitter is going to say, you know, what Twitter is going to put out there. What what's his name, Jack uh, Jack Dorsey? You know what what he's going to yeah. say on Twitter. What we're talking about is them censoring what other people say. And I don't think that Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act has anything to do with that. And in any event, it's got a very clear exception for for state legislation that is not in conflict with with that section. And so I think it's clear that state legislation of the kind that that I've proposed and advocated uh, is perfectly consistent with Section 230. Well, let me ask you this question. Should we consider taking 230 away from like Facebook, Twitter, or some of these other sites? Well, I'm not sure it applies to them. You know, I'm not sure it applies to them uh, when, when they undertake to censor user content um yeah. and and um you know the joke is i mean if an amazon prime uh, uh, truck rear ends somebody on the highway and they and and they sue amazon the first defense and the answer is going to be section 230 of the communications decency act you know i mean to hear them tell it you'd think it's this sort of universal shield that guards them from yeah. any exposure to anybody for anything and i i read that section and kind of scratch my head because i'm not sure where they're finding that i i do well, think again, that yeah, yeah go ahead I, I do think that well, in an ideal world, it, it would make sense to revisit some of these issues, knowing what we now know about how the Internet has developed and how, how mass communication yeah. has developed in America and come up with a, with a clear legal framework. The problem is it's not going to happen. You know, it, yeah. it, it, the Democrats don't want the kind of legal framework that you and I want. They want what they've got, which is people acting on their behalf, censoring conservative viewpoints, but not censoring liberal viewpoints. They think that's a wonderful yeah. world. <laughs> they don't have any desire to change it. Yeah. 
Well, that's I mean that I mean you know this because this is the biggest problem I've had along with this because I kind of view Twitter as becoming more and more like the New York Times. It does have a bias that's there. It exists, and uh, and they have censored ideas that they disagreed with. I mean, we're not talking about pornography. I mean, kind of you know pornography. We're talking or child trafficking, which are things that. 230 would protect, and even your law would protect. But we're talking about... It, it would protect their ability to censor that content, right? Yeah. And so there's nothing there that would prevent that. Yeah. No. So even if no, you take no. away 230 from them, they would not... They would still be... They could still do what they want to do with that with pornography. I mean, let's face it. If you go on Instagram or Facebook once in a while, you will see, you know, you know questionable... <laughs> dealing with, let's say, women, you know, advertising their services or their latest, uh, what's, whatever their latest site that they have, you know, beyond Facebook. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, you know, I mean, I, I agree with the idea that, that if, a, if a social media, look, there should be different kinds of social media platforms, Right. Um, yeah. I don't have any problem with somebody saying, look, we, we are going to be a social media platform that is family friendly, and we're not going to have any content on this platform that your 12-year-old daughter shouldn't see. And, and you know, so, so it's, not ju- it's, it's not just the, the contours of the First Amendment, you know, is it, is it, is it pornographic in, in legal terms so that it could legally yeah. be banned? I mean, I think it would be, it's perfectly fine for a social media uh, company yeah. to say we want to have this kind of a platform, and and if somebody else wants to have a social media outfit and say we're going to have a different kind of platform, we're going to have a kind of a platform that's really risque, right? We're not going to allow anything that's illegal, no. but oh, nudity or you know whatever, right? You know we are the racy social media platform. I think that's fine too, and and um, and and what I don't like is when in any of these platforms they discriminate on the basis of political orientation uh, and particularly particularly when 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 you know the platform is otherwise um, wide open in other words you can you yeah. can you can write anything on you know you can tweet anything you want right um, yeah. but 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 selectively if you tweet something that violates the liberal shibboleths of the day you know your account may be suspended right and, and so if Twitter, yeah. if Twitter held itself out and said, look, we are a social media platform for Democrats, and, and you have to fill out an application to, to participate in our platform, and in the application you have to certify that you're a member in good standing of the Democratic Party, well, you, I think you should be able to do that, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. you know, I, mean, I, I, think, I think there's some, there's some nuance here. Um, you know, and 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 I'm not unsympathetic to the idea that um, user experience is something that a platform like Facebook is is entitled to take into account. I just don't think they should be able to discriminate on the basis of race or sex or religion or political orientation in the management that they do, the moderation that they do of user content. Now, hold on, thought this is Tom Dawson, Dawson Files here on the Bastion News Radio Network. Uh, and don't forget, next week we'll be on StreamYard.com. On the other side of the break, we will give you more details.
Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, next week uh, we're going to be on StreamYard.com. More details will be coming on the following sites. You can at Donaldson Files Getter, Donaldson Files Parlor.com, Donaldson Files Twitter, Donaldson T Files.com, our website, um, my you know, website for the show. And, uh, and also, don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, um, my latest book, um, America in the Abyss Will America Survive? But it's also it's a book that not only talks about the current trajectory and what happens if we continue this, but solutions, including putting you know keeping a the new coalition of rural America, blue collar workers, uh, combining Trump populism with conservatism, as I state in my book, and and I do detail the elections results of 2020, the impact of the pandemic, the implosion of what I call the leadership class. New coalitions being built on the right. So, for more information and 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 if you want more, and also if you want to kind of follow up on some of these ideas, that I'll be talking the book. Our Powerline blog is uh, John Hinderecker, you know, edits and writes for on a daily basis. is one of the best sites to do exactly that because he and his fellow writers have been on top of this, gosh, since two thousand and four. <laughs> Is it, was it 2002, 2002, 2002, Tom. We go back to oh, uh, May yeah. of 2002, yeah. Yeah, 2002. And, yeah, let's talk about it real quick in the media. And I'm going to bring in uh, my good friend, Dr. Larry, who's on the Resistance Hour following this show. But there was a great article you wrote a while back talking about the media. And it goes back to our discussion of censorship and everything else. But the, the change in the media itself, in 2004, you were part of that movement. You know, of those individuals who, you know, remember Dan Rather did a story on George Bush and his time as a in the National Guard, and you caught among other you and others caught the fact that there was a lot of misinformation, outright lies, uh, you know, fake documentations that were being used to slander George Bush in an effort to derail his campaign against uh, John Kerry, and. The point here is what CBS did. CBS fired, essentially fired anybody who produced the story. They pretty much waved goodbye to Dan Rather, who at that time had four decades of experience as being a top reporter for CBS. It was, I mean, they basically fired their number one guy at CBS. And well, they fired a number of the people, media. yeah. Yeah. And you look at it today, and – Washington Post had pretty much acknowledged recently that their story, which they won a Pulitzer Prize on the Russian collusion hoax, was based on fake information. And I've yet to see anybody at Washington Post, New York Times, or any of the major networks that promoted that story be fired or held accountable. And there are no Pulitzer Prizes being returned or rescinded. And that's a period of about 16 years. Your thoughts on that? Then I'm going to bring in Dr. Larry. Go ahead. 
Yeah, so so the point that I made in my post is that over the last, you know, 15 years or 20 or so, we've seen this evolution in the press. It used to be a matter of liberal bias, right? And in the early years of our website, Powerline, we wrote a lot about liberal bias and the, and the 60-minute story about President Bush's service in the Texas Air National Guard back in the early 70s was a great example of liberal bias. And they used fake documents, and the whole thing was fake. Everything about it was, was false. But, but here's the point. CBS was deeply embarrassed that they had produced a false news story. Within 12 hours of when we did our first post on this on Powerline, CBS News announced that they were launching an investigation into what had happened. And they hired a former attorney general of the United States named Thornburg to investigate and write a report. And he did. And it was a, it was a good report. It detailed how this false report was was generated and produced on uh, on 60 Minutes. And, and by that time, Dan Rather was gone. Uh, they fired Mary Mapes, the producer of the segment, and a couple of other CBS employees. And then the head of CBS News later said this is the most – you know, this is the, the lowest point in the history of, uh, of CBS News. They, they, they at least held themselves out and wanted to be seen as an objective, fair, neutral news source, not as a, as a biased partisan source, right? They, they at least wanted to be seen that way. Yeah. And I think that between 2004 and 2020, when we saw the Russian collusion hopes that went on for what you know two years or three years whatever maybe maybe longer i don't know um i think that really had changed and so and so now we're not just talking about liberal bias in outlets like the new york times washington post cnn etc it's not just liberal bias they are openly openly partisan and they are openly working for the benefit of the liberal movement and the Democratic Party. And these reporters and these editors who, who propagated the fake Russia collusion hoax, they are not embarrassed about it. I think they are proud of what they did. Their effort was intended to bring down Donald Trump, and in the end, they pretty much succeeded. I think they're proud of that. There's been no investigation. There have been no Pulitzer Prizes returned. There's been nobody fired. I think from the standpoint of those left-wing activist outlets, it's mission accomplished. I think that's what they think. And that's a big change. They, they are past the point where they hold themselves out as being neutral and, and nonpartisan and objective. They are now open advocates for leftism. Okay, Dr. Larry, welcome to the show. Uh, well, your thoughts? Well, um, I agree with what, what you're saying. I, I think, although <clears throat> um, I didn't, I didn't. Uh, uh, I, I guess I haven't been introduced to your guest, Tom. Yeah. Well, let me introduce you, uh, uh, John. This is Dr. Larry Federer. Uh You know, Dr. Federer is, is one of these gentlemen who's basically he started a university. He's been a consultant. He's been a, he's got a degree in, you know, PhD in philosophy. He basically his resume reads like war and peace. And, <laughs> and one of these aspects of consulting is he actually during the Bush years consulted on put, getting a vaccine to the market, where he actually has met the great God of gods, Tony Fauci. <laughs> and. Uh, 
and has dealt with the with the you know a good portion of the National Institute of Health and some of the bureaucracy that we talk about. He's actually dealt with these people, so I wanted to kind of introduce that, and we may get a little bit more into that a little bit, you know, before we get off the air. Uh, so, okay, Dr. Larry did, and John Anderacker is the, and John Anderacker is the, he is the president of Amer- the Center for American Experiment, which is a think tank out of Minnesota. He is also one of the contributors and originators of Powerline Blog, which is one of the top conservative blogs in the United States. Millions of people listen or read that blog. And, and John, you're also quite a bit. I mean, you're, I mean you, you're, you've also now become a guest host, because I know you've been on the Don Prophet Show out of Chicago, and you've guest host for him, and you've guest host for others. And you've also now, you appear to be the guy that when Australia Sky News needs a U.S. expert, they call you. Well, I've guest hosted a lot for Laura Ingram when she had her radio show. I guest host sometimes for Dennis Prager. But that's right. My favorite media gig is appearing as a guest on uh, on the programs on Sky News in Australia, uh, trying to explain American politics to Australians. (laughs) And that's really fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Okay. Now, Doctor Larry, I'm going to go back there. The point that he was making is on the bias of the media and the problems we yeah. have with tech censorship, which are beginning. So, the question I'm going to throw back to you is your thoughts yeah. on my you know, have, what you have observed, especially in considering what you know about Tony Fauci, because unlike John and I, you've met this guy, you've dealt with this guy, <laughs> you've dealt with a lot of his people, and so. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, the, how the media treats Tony and, and what you saw of Tony. Go ahead. I, I don't like to brag about that, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, well, um, I, I guess my only footnote on the uh, opinion, that, uh, is it Don? John. Um, John. Um, that, uh, that, he was, that you were making was, would be that, um, I think there was there was a uh, bias there there was a liberal bias to the so-called um, independent and nonpartisan and neutral um, news uh, that we got even when we were in the Walter Cronkite and Jim Lehrer era. I mean, these 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 people were, by today's standards, pretty pretty liberal. Oh, absolutely. And, and yeah. um, they, but nobody objected to it. In fact, we didn't even realize it because uh, uh, they were very very popular, and and people really believed everything they said. In fact, uh, as you probably remember, they they used to talk about. And nothing was true until Walter Cronkite re, uh, reported it, um, and that that bias was uh, really there, and it was began to be uh, discovered and and uh, reacted to, and eventually uh, uh, changed. Um, at least exposed by the successors of those people. Well, and that's exactly right. And the difference is, though, at that time, objectivity and fairness try- and, and neutrality was the standard. 
you know, they pretended well, they, to yeah, be unbiased. Yeah, they were you know, trying whereas, to do it anyway. Well, they, they at least the pre- they, they they acknowledged that they were supposed to be unbiased. They weren't. No, I totally agree with you. Walter Cronkite turned out to be a leftist. We, we know that now. But my point is that they don't pretend anymore. The, the, yeah. the, the ideal yeah. of neutrality and objectivity is just gone. They are now exactly. activists. I certainly agree with that. Yeah. Now the yeah the uh, and you know like I said because to me like I said the, you know this list because one of the things that like John you know I I think your ideas of going state by state with some you know with your proposal I think may prove to be the best way for Republicans and those of us who are concerned about freedom of speech and and it's kind of interesting I don't think it's I think you're now seeing people on the left you know and I'm thinking people like Glenn Grinwald is a good example or Barbie Weiss. Or even you know lately, Bill Moyer is acting like common sense. Is that I think some of these people are seeing the future and they're not liking it because they're kind of sensing, you know, if we don't stay step in lock with everybody, we be the ones next to be censored. Your thoughts? Well, that's that's absolutely right. The revolution eats its children, right? Um, it keeps yeah. you know this this mad race to the left. Uh, eventually leaves everybody behind. And sooner or later, they all go to the guillotine, right? <laughs> At least figuratively speaking. And I think you're right. I think a lot of liberals have figured out that, that uh, you know, the secret police, the cancel culture folks are coming for them next. And and I think, you know, they're, they're a, a lot. the left generally has abandoned free speech as an ideal, you know. Uh, but there are still some honest liberals out there who, who still believe in free speech. Now, increasingly, we're starting to call those people conservatives, right? I mean, you get a Barry Weiss or somebody like that. And uh, somebody that, that five yeah. or ten years ago, you'd have said, well, yeah, she's a, she's a liberal. Now you look at her and you say, well, where it counts, you know, she's, she's on our side. Or you can mention someone like Tulsi Gabbard, you know, a, a liberal Democrat from Hawaii, um, who, who five or ten years ago, you'd say, well, yeah, you know, she, she's a liberal. Uh, however, she's been very outspoken on, on free speech, and she's patriotic and pro-military and isn't trying to undermine America with critical race theory and that kind of thing. And so I look at her now and I say, well, you know, where it counts, she's on our side. And so I think in, in important ways those lines have kind of been redrawn. Yeah, you got it the other way, too. You got the other way too, and that is that we've got some Republicans that really aren't very uh, uh, Republican. <laughs> not they're not joining the new the new uh, face of the Republican Party, and they're really standing pretty firm with with the, with the deep state and and uh, and this whole idea of bipartisan to the extent of uh, giving the liberals most of what they want the the never trump never trumpers well that's absolutely right i mean some of these never trumpers i i don't know what happened to them i mean somebody like bill crystal you know what the heck happened i i i, I cannot explain it uh then you've got people like mitt romney you know um he's who, also a never trumper really yeah no that's right that's right and, and it's really disappointing how uh, some of these people just don't seem to understand where the battle lines have been drawn and how much is at stake. Exactly. Let me ask you yeah. a question. I'm not, yeah, you know, let, let me try and follow up there. Because here's the question. Because yeah, I, I look at someone like Liz Cheney, who let's say five years ago or six years I would have respect for and have respect for her. 
father, even if you didn't always agree with them. You know, like she's like off a deep end jumping into the entire lake. And I know one of your associates, uh, you know, kind of wrote a piece where he basically said, you know, when she comes out, I mean, when she was basically repeating all the left-wing talking points about, you know, the GOP being a bunch of racists, I mean, it, it, I mean, I, I'm like thinking to myself, you know, where, you know, what happened to her? I mean, what, what caused this break, the breakdown? Yeah, do you have a well, theory he, on that, John? Yeah. Well, John, I don't. Do I can't answer. No, I don't. I, I can't answer the question. Um, I, 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 it's kind of mysterious to me that some of these people seem not to understand, you know, uh, what, what, what the real battle lines are and, and, and how much the future of our country is at stake. And, and so these people that, and of course, uh, Liz Cheney is one of them, who, who bought this whole January 6th narrative, you know, hook, line, and sinker. Oh, it's an insurrection. You know, the Republican Party is turned into a seditious party. And apparently we chose this guy with the antlers and the fur hat to lead our insurrection. You know, I mean, the whole thing is so stupid. You know, I, I'm I'm from the Twin Cities. I live in I live in a suburb of Minneapolis, and and if you come and, and visit me, I'll show you a section of Lake Street, a major street in the city of Minneapolis, two miles of which have been burned to the ground. Two miles, right? And and if I go to Washington D.C. and and say, well, show me the show me the the miles of the, that were burned to the ground and the people that were killed and the destruction destruction that was done in this this great insurrection of January 6th, well, you know, you're not going to find it. Now, what you will find if you look at the the Black Lives Matter riots that took place in Washington in the summer of 2020, now there there was some destruction. And if you look at the riot that took place on the day when Donald Trump got inaugurated, there there was destruction and there there was violence being committed. So, so yeah, I, I don't understand these Republicans who so completely lose their sense of proportion that they just get sucked into things like the Democrats, you know, uh, January 6th narrative. Yeah. Okay, uh, John, I mean, uh, Larry, your, your thoughts. Well, I think that I think that Liz <clears throat> got a kind of a um, warped view of this whole of the whole Trump phenomenon when he went against when he went against Bush and by uh and then eventually um the late sort of latent hostility to uh Cheney came out and I think that's what got her goat, and I think she somehow got sort of trapped into uh, a family. Uh, I mean, the Bushes are all pretty much still the same way, you know. They now, uh, it, it, to his credit, uh, George W. has not pursued the uh, the anger that <clears throat> that was. Uh, that was part of uh, his brother's uh, feeling to uh, to uh, to Trump, and Trump, you know, Trump kind of took on that whole crowd, and I think she's kind of the remnant of it. She she kind of didn't realize that she uh, that new time had come and she, time to bury the hatchet, uh, and and yeah. so she still is, is that she she's still there. 
but uh, well, you but know the way I, I, th- I yeah, yeah. But I yeah. think that I I'm think there's it. some other issues though too. If you look at Peter yeah. Schweitzer's new book, uh, you find out things like uh, the fact that uh, John Boehner is is now a uh, uh, in, involved with the uh, with the chi- with the Chinese as a uh, you know trying to lobby for them. Uh, that that is really uh, part of this whole new. Um, idea, at least the new uh, understanding of of where some of these uh, non, uh, uh, I guess we call them never Trumpers. Where why why they're never Trumpers? I mean, they're partly not never Trumpers for other reasons, and I, not not <laughs> reasons yeah, that yeah, we yeah. knew about. Yeah, that's it. Because like I said, because I've not yet read uh, Peter's newest book. I know I've read. You know, several. I mean, there's a he. This is like the second book he's actually done on the China connection with all of these politicians. Yeah. So, yeah. And so but it's like, uh, yeah. But, well, man, well, I think Larry. I think you make a good point. I think you make a good point. And and you know, it, it, it's really interesting because for for I don't know how many years, twenty years or so, you know, much of American business was totally in bed with the Chinese, and everybody thought it was terrific. You know, Nixon went to China, and Clinton got him into the World Trade Organization, and you know, two, I don't know, well, I don't know what the percentage is, but some huge percentage of our goods are being manufactured in China, and we're saving a lot of money because of the you know cheap costs there and so forth, and. And and that everybody thought that was terrific, right? And and then uh, yeah. over time, uh, it became apparent that there were some serious downsides. And and Donald Trump, I you know, became the voice of the people who thought this this was not turning out so well for us after all. And now it's become clear that China is really an adversary. You know, probably our number one adversary. And yeah. um, and and a lot of people who who had their hand in the China cookie jar are are you know, are now kind of exposed. And I'm looking forward to reading Peter Schweitzer's book. I, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be eye-opening. It, it, it is. It's incredibly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's so bad yeah. that that you just, you, you can hardly, you can hardly stand it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, look at a quick question, because we've got about five minutes left. I wanted to uh, uh, get re- your, both of your opinions on the, Retirement of Steve Bow, I mean the new the Supreme Court justice, and uh, your thoughts on what do you think is going to happen? Other than let's just put it this way, you know, which radical left wing non constitutional lawyer is uh, Joe Biden going to end up you know give us, <laughs> and where do we go from here? I'll start with you first, John. Well, you know, first of all, first this observation, you know, I knew Stephen Breyer years and years ago. He was my antitrust professor when I was in law school, and he also was my advisor for my third-year paper in, in law school. And a lot of what I know about free market economics, I learned from Stephen Breyer, you know, uh, in the context of, of antitrust law. And um, at that time, he was not a crazy left-winger. And um, and when, when when we get a replacement for him, who is going to be a crazy left winger, we can take that to the bank. I mean, it's going to be a change. You know, Breyer, he, he you know he went with the party line in all the hot button social cases, social issues, right? But but you know, in, in other ways, you know, he was not um, a leftist. 
So, so what's going to happen now? Well, you know, Biden already has said during the campaign that his first Supreme Court nominee is going to be a black woman. And so that obviously locks him into one of a, a pretty small pool of possibilities. I take seriously the idea that he may nominate Kamala Harris. You know, that could solve some problems for the Democrats. If he puts her on the Supreme Court, he then gets to appoint a new vice president. And then when the time comes for the leadership of the of the party to slide Joe Biden out of office, uh, instead of instead of having to turn to the deeply unpopular Kamala Harris, you know, they can they can slide somebody new in there. And so I don't know. I think that is a possible scenario. Yeah. Well, the, the the argument against that though is <clears throat> that if he does that, he gives up the fifty-first uh, uh, tie-breaking uh, vote in the Senate, and for the time, for this for this period, and then of course uh, the chances for their for a uh, Republican Senate in uh, in next year uh, are obviously much higher, but. But if he's going to get anything done, it's going to have to be right now, and he needs that 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 uh, tiebreaker in the in the Senate. That that's the reason I've been hearing that that he's not going to uh, appoint her. Well, I hope you're right. I mean, as soon as he got a new vice president appointed, that person could be the tiebreaker. But I suppose that would take a certain amount of time. It would. Yeah, I mean, like I said, well, guys, well, yeah. it, it would take longer than he's got. Yeah, on, yeah, the, think, on the assumption that 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 the Republicans win uh, this year. Well, let me ask you a quick question here. Just I'll ask you, John. We got about two minutes left here, about three minutes left before we. But if you were to pick who would, you know, let's just say theoretically, you know, Harris gets the nod to go to the Supreme Court to get her out of the number two position. Who does he put in the number two position? Oh, I have no idea. I have no idea. One of the problems the Democrats have is they have no bench. I mean, they've been talking, you know, they've been floating a trial balloon about running Hillary in 2024. What does that tell you? They, you know, they try to pawn off Pete Buttigieg as a plausible presidential candidate. I mean, so so that's a real serious question. You know, who is it that they would like to anoint as the heir apparent to Joe Biden? I don't know. But I mean, I think it could be a a Pete Buttigieg or someone of that ilk. Well, I'm thinking either Pete Buttigieg or your own Senator Amy, <laughs> because for all of her, I mean, for all of her, you know, faults of uh, Plough Shower, she at least has an element of competency around her versus Harris. But beyond that, and she basically is as leftist as anybody else. She just hides it better. Uh, Minnesota. Well, cool yes, I mean, I, you know, she could be as plausible a choice as. as uh, yeah. As any, uh, she had some health issues and has been kind of quiet lately. And I, I don't know exactly what's going on there. But um, yeah, you know, she, uh, she's a woman. Uh, she's not stupid. I mean, she's you know, uh, she, she's got issues um, uh, in dealing with her staff, for example. You know, but um, yeah, but she's probably well, as plausible. I mean, that's. I guess well, that'd be par for the score for a Biden vice presidency, anyway. I mean, it's not nobody's ever accused Harris of being nice either. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It would be in the tradition. Yeah, yeah, the tradition. Okay, I tell you, we're going to stop right there. Uh, I want to first of all thank you, John, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. 
And you, and again, very briefly, tell everybody about the Center for American Experiment where they can get a hold of you. Well, if you go to AmericanExperiment.org, not .com, but AmericanExperiment.org, you can learn all about our organization. We have fresh content every day. We have videos. We have papers. We have all kinds of stuff. We have a quarterly magazine that's really good that you can subscribe to for free on the website. And so uh, check it out, AmericanExperiment.org. All right, sounds good. That's I want to thank you, John, for joining us. And don't forget to read Fireline Blog. Uh, Fireline Blog every day. Uh, this is Tom Donaldson, and I'm saying good night here from the Donaldson Files. And stick around because, ladies and gentlemen, uh, George Landreth is going to be joining us to talk about the follow-up conversation we had last week on EMPs and its possible impact. So, yeah, thank you, John, for joining us. And this is Tom Donaldson saying good night. Donaldson Files, Twitter, Donaldson Files, Getter, 
DonaldsonFireParlor.com, DonaldsonTFiles.com, and we'll give you all the information you need to be able to listen to and watch us in action starting next week. Uh, So I just want uh, everybody to know that. I didn't mean to step on you, George, but... Uh, Not at all. That's important information. Folks got to know how they can keep up with you guys. And, uh, of course, if there's an EMP between now and then, none of that will matter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we'll keep uh, our fingers crossed. No, um, yeah. you know, to answer your your question, the, the problem with the, an EMP attack is that it could essentially send us back to a time and a place where technology isn't really important. I guess wheels would still work and fire could still be, you know, you could set fire to something. But the reality is all the things, the guidance systems we have, the communication systems we have, the electronics, the computer chips, anything that is, you know, uses those would become fried. So you would find that everything from automobiles to your phones as a consumer to electronics in your home, whether it was, you know, all this stuff, transformers, it would simultaneously go down. Now, but, but of course, whether or not your microwave works or your cell phone works is probably not a matter of national security. But the problem is if, if those things go down, you know that so many other things will be down as well. And our, so that means our radars, our abilities to track, our abilities to even launch retaliatory attacks, our abilities to get uh, planes up into the air to defend ourselves, all these kinds of things would be severely compromised, if not completely uh, undermined. And I think people need to understand that our – well, if you go back in time to 1776 – we were defending ourselves with essentially muskets and the technology included things like bayonets. And so the EMT, the EMP uh, risk was essentially nil, even though there were lightning storms and they can, and and solar flares and they can provide smaller, um, you know, EMPs as well. But a nuclear EMP would be something that uh, an adversary would launch uh, that would not kill everyone. It would just destroy all the technology. And it would have the effect of eventually killing everyone. And it would be kind of a horrible kind of post-apocalyptic. You know, if you saw Hunger Games or something like that, that would be kind of what the life would become like. If you saw Mad Max, Beyond Thunderdome or something, that's what life could become like. Because um, people say, oh, well, we just fix it. And the answer would be, we do that after a hurricane blows through. That's because it's localized, and, not, and the hurricane doesn't destroy everything. It may just destroy three or four transformers, and, uh, and so we can fix that. But if every transformer from coast to coast is destroyed, we have no way to repair those in even a year. We don't even have the capacity to build that many transformers in a short period of time. And so um, you would have... Um, just, you know, nothing would work. And so hospitals would become essentially just large buildings that had people with uh, medical degrees in them, but none of the technology they use would work. They wouldn't have power to run it, even if it did work. So 
I think we have to understand that it's a pretty significant risk. And, um, and it's an altering risk in this sense. We have historically enjoyed a technological advance or, or advantage over our opponents. We won the uh, Cold War against the former Soviet Union, largely because they couldn't keep up with our advances in technology. And, uh, you know, for at least historically speaking, if uh, China always had a, a much larger army than we had, because they simply have so many people, but we always had technological advances that would have made it very difficult for them to compete with us. And this is a way to reorder the universe, to take away the advantages that we have and just reduce it down to raw numbers, which favors, for example, the Chinese, you know, almost 10 to 1. So on some level, I think as a nation, we have to take this risk very seriously. And I think, unfortunately, we haven't. Uh, you know, the military has taken it somewhat seriously in, in that they've done a few things. I'm not saying they've done nothing. But by and large, our society, I remember the first time I wrote about this topic was in the 1990s. The, uh, the president was, at that time, um, Bill Clinton. And you know what I think is interesting? We've made precious little progress, very, very little progress. And there's no good reason for that other than the fact that people decided they don't want to spend the money to do it. And so until it happens, you know, they, they don't want to be bothered. And the problem is, is once it happens, it's too late. You then, um, you know, it's, it's just it, – so I, I, I'm concerned because we have to get America's attention. We have to make sure that uh, the voters, members of Congress, members of the administration, leaders in the Pentagon, uh, industrial leaders that are responsible for the hardening of our uh, grid, things like that, that they're paying attention. And they're not just looking at this saying, you know what, I don't want to spend money on that now. Well, I guess, I guess my, my uh, <clears throat> first uh, reaction is that we're, not, we're, we're talking about food and water as being the, the, the main casual, or at least the, the most significant casualties for uh, such, a, such an attack. Because you you don't um, we uh, we're, we're, we'll take a quick break here and uh, come back on the other side and and talk a little bit about <clears throat> how to what 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 we can do. This is uh, you're listening to the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Confessions of a potentially perfect parent, brought to you by AdoptUsKids.org. I might look like an adult, like a person who could possibly be a parent, but I have no idea how to talk like one. And everyone knows that if you want to be a parent, you have to sound good when you say things like, don't make me turn this car around, or because I said so, or don't make me come back there. I don't even really know what those things mean, but I know that I actually believed my parents when they said them to me. How did they manage to sound so convincing? Here we go. Don't make me come back there. Ugh, no, that's not tough enough at all. Kids can sense weakness. Don't make me come back there. Ooh, yeah, that's better. In fact, that kind of sounded like my dad. Weird. 
You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who would love to listen to you practice your dad voice. Call 1-888-200-4005 or visit adoptuskids.org for more information. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt Us Kids, and the Ad Council. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, next week we'll be on StreamYard.com. More details will be coming, including just uh, you can get more information from my Twitter site at Donaldson Files, my Getter site at Donaldson Files, Parlor site at Donaldson Files, DonaldsonTFiles.com, and we'll give you and we'll give you help to listen to both the Donaldson Files and the Resistance Hour, and also my latest book, America at the Abyss: Will America Survive? is now will be available February seventh at great bookstores everywhere. But you can pre-order this book through BarnesandNoble.com and Amazon.com, and I just am looking right now at the site of Barnes & Noble, and if you pre-order any book, including my book, you get a 25% discount. Let me repeat that, 25% discount with the code PREORDER25. America the best, will America survive? Pre-order code 25, and you get a 25% discount. So... Be the first on your block to get the book and get the answer to the question, will America survive? All right, Larry. Yeah, I was just saying that that, that the fundamental problem of uh, a successful uh, cyber attack, if they, if they succeeded in, in, in taking out the entire country, uh, is is food and water because right now all the food is being raised in farms uh, obviously and and it's uh, it has to be uh, it has to be uh, t- uh, harvested and then it has to be taken to uh, certain uh, transportation uh, uh, you know the the whole transportation issue. Of how does it get to the people, and the people are all clustered in these large, and not all, but many of the uh, people in the United States are clustered in in large large cities. So, so they have to have transport. The, the uh, food has to be transported to those cities. That the way that's done now is principally through uh, trucking and trains. None of neither of which would be working, and uh, this and when water, uh, the uh, water purification uh, systems that we have that allow us to drink the water that we uh, have available would all go down, and the water itself would become polluted and uh, probably poisonous. In fact, to the to the point that Dr. Peter Price's prediction is that within one year. 90% of the American population would have died because of uh, food and water, uh, principally food and water not being available. Plus, there'd be social uh, reorganization of uh, the, the, uh, you know, the, the survival of the fittest, and probably uh, the gangsters would start, people would get involved in in uh, trying to uh, steal food and uh, 
it would just, it would just be absolute, absolutely Armageddon. And <clears throat> and and then the the other piece of this though is that uh, the that the technology that we uh, would that is required for hardening the uh, network is basically now it's already we already have it and it's not very not very technologically difficult uh so the question is we don't we don't we have the resources and we have the opportunity and we have the technology and the thing what do we lack we lack the 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 um we lack the motivation to uh to pursue it and that, in turn, is very tricky, tricky uh, terrain, because most of our uh, most of our network is actually uh, owned and operated by private uh, parties, private companies, as opposed to the government, and uh, so so the government has a responsibility for making and enforcing laws and and, and uh, regulations that would harden the the entire uh, system but <clears throat> from what we're hearing the reason and that exists the the uh, the agencies and the um, and the legislation already exists and what's lacking is apparently, or the reason it hasn't been implemented is because apparently there's a, a very cozy relationship between the enforcers and the uh, and the industry, and the industry doesn't want to spend the extra money, and the, uh, the government's going along with it, and that is what has to change. But of course, we don't. If if if, and and then and then the other, but the other issue is. Here we have the Biden administration play, uh, playing with fire by by actually publicly uh, threatening the Russians with uh, a cyber attack uh, that we would do the cyber attack on them, and the fact is that they have a they have superior technology to us, and the, and the Chinese they they instead of uh, Doing what the Russians tried to do for 40 years of trying to compete with us in uh, technological uh, uh, advances, they decided to just steal all of ours, and uh, so they started. They, they, their starting point was uh, where we uh, where we ended, and uh, they just uh, carried it on, and they are much more <clears throat> apparently. Uh, much more advanced than we are, and particularly uh, including, I should say, the uh, outer space and the space, the space core that uh, uh, President Trump was trying to uh, promote has gotten uh, sidetracked, and so that they're not. That's that's also another area that that we have neglected. So. It's just, it's just, it's, it's a real horror story. And um, Georgia, you're, you're more involved in, 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 uh, well, not indirectly anyway, in, in the, uh, well, certainly in the Washington scene, than, uh, than I am anymore. So, um, 
do you what what do you have any ideas as to how I mean the reason we're having this program for example is because we do feel that 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 we that we also have a responsibility to the to the country to to try to to spread the word that this is an extremely important issue but uh if uh, the if the Russians uh, decided to uh hit hit us i guess uh, that that would conceivably would could be a a very 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 dangerous thing and and uh, so my question is do you know of anybody in the government that seems to be upset about this uh well we uh used to have a president who was concerned about it <laughs> uh donald trump yeah, actually we don't we uh, don't anymore Right. Uh, Donald Trump actually uh, put an executive order in place. And that, then, of course, you had um, you know, entrenched interests that kind of ignored it or gave lip service to it, but didn't do a lot. Um, but on a practical level, I think this is a function of the American public has to, um, well, if you will, have a temper tantrum. You know, let, let elected people know this matters to us. When they show up in your town to have a town hall meeting, um, it's time to, you know, let yourself be heard. You know, make make a stink. Uh, let them know this matters. I, I think uh, one of the advantages we have in a democratic society is, you know, if you're a Chinese person and you try to get Xi Jinping to listen to you, he just has you killed. In our in our system, they don't have that option. And if enough, if enough of us speak up and express ourselves and, and make it clear this matters, they'll start listening more than likely. So I, I feel like that's, you know, we have that going for us is that we can make a difference, but we can't be complacent. Um, you know, ask yourself, if Americans had known that Pearl Harbor was coming, would they have wanted the government to be more prepared, to be smarter, to be more on uh, – uh, you know, more attentive, or would they be perfectly happy with, ah, we'll deal with that when it happens. You know, think back to, you know, 9-11. And, uh, you know, would it have been better if we'd been more attentive, if our security uh, uh, people had been aware of what was going on instead of kind of, you know, not talking to each other, not connecting the dots and missing things. And um, so on some level, uh, the the problem is it's hard to get people motivated to worry about something that might happen in the future. And, uh, but, but when you look at the realities and realize that these are things that these are not just scary scenarios, but they are uh, things that are likely to occur in the, in the future, particularly when you look at the, um, the Chinese, they've made it very clear. Their communist regime has made it very, very clear that they have the intentions of ruling the world. And they even sometimes mock us in the West for how kind of unaware we seem to be of what their intentions are. And they've made no real attempt to hide it. And uh, so at some point, we either have to wake up or we're begging for them to do something like that. And I would argue Putin very much wants to recreate the glory days of the Soviet Union, such as they were. Um, I don't think they're ever glory days for the average uh, 
you know, Soviet citizen. But, uh, but they were certainly glory days for the uh, communist uh, leaders and their oligarch friends. And he'd like to go back to that. And uh, so I, I think there's plenty of motivation on their part. And they see us as standing between them and their goal, what they want. They want to be the world's sole superpower. They'd like to knock us off our pedestal. And, um, and that won't just be a, a demotion like at the office. It'll be more like a public hanging. So we have to take this seriously. This is going to be a little bit, uh, you know, we either do something about it or when it happens, we have to be willing to, you know, say shame on us. We were warned. We didn't listen. We didn't care. And I think the, uh, you're right about it's. I mean, militarily, it concerns me because we may not have to wait a year, meaning if they do certain things to us and incapacitate our advantages militarily, they could do all kinds of things to us. But maybe they say, oh, we don't want to mess with that because we'll let the Americans kill each other off and slowly die out as they run out of all the necessities of life. Because people will soon find out food doesn't actually come from the grocery store. Maybe they're figuring that out now as they go to the grocery store. My, my wife just got home from the grocery store today telling me there was no chicken there. She couldn't find chicken anywhere in the grocery store. So, um, you know, I think that's the first time in my life that that's been the case. Um, and yet, uh, imagine if that were true on every aisle. It wouldn't just be that prices would be higher. It would be at $100, you couldn't buy a gallon of milk. At $200, you couldn't buy a gallon of milk. At $5,000, you couldn't buy a gallon of milk. Why? Because it wouldn't be there. And so I think we have to understand that this isn't just a, kind of a passing concern. It's, it's, it's a lot bigger than that. Well, on that, on that cheerful note, we'll uh, take another break. You're listening to the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, next week we'll be on StreamYard.com here on the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom. And we'll give you more details as that comes along. But here are some of the places you can look for it. Both the Resistance Hour and Dr. and the Donaldson Files. You can get this information on Twitter at Donaldson Files, at Getter at Donaldson Files, Parlor.com at Donaldson Files, DonaldsonTFiles.com. And don't forget, you can buy my latest book, America at the Abyss, uh, through barnesandnoble.com. Pre-order it right now through barnesandnoble.com, and you can get a 25% discount. Pre-order 25 is the code. Pre-order 25, get a 25% discount on my latest, greatest, and most impressive work yet. Uh, America at the Abyss. Well, America at the Abyss. So, and now, George, I got a question for you. Uh, is all right. I'm. I was looking through your, you know, the files of Frontier Freedom, and there was a piece a while, you know, a few years ago, the diplomacy of missile defense, which uh, Peter Hussey, I think, was the gentleman who was 
uh, writing that. Uh, he was a, you know, and, uh, and, and he wrote this originally. It was actually in Your Frontier of Freedom, uh, National Security Affairs, and uh, talked about, you know, the use of the missile defense. We didn't talk that much about it last week, but how does this all kind of – it seems to me there's kind of a combination here. You know, we have the Space Force, which you – know, we have the Space Force of potential, missile defense. These are – as well as hardening. So certainly, where does the missile defense play in all of this and keeping us safe, not just from missiles, but also from an EMT attack? Well, certainly one of the most uh, common ways to launch a EMP would be some sort of uh, intercontinental ballistic missile that would, instead of targeting a particular city, would just be designed to be sent uh, – you know, over up high, so it'd have maximum impact, and the electromagnetic pulse would have its greatest reach to damage, and uh, just explode it up there. And the advantage there is you don't have to have a tremendously accurate guidance system; you just need a big bomb and a and a delivery system to get it over top of the country. So that's a pretty small, you know, that's a pretty small lift when it comes to accuracy. You know, we have missiles, for example, where if you say you want to bomb a particular building, they could ask you, well, what window would you like the missile to go through in that building? What floor would you like the missile to, you know, hit? That's how accurate they are. You don't need that with an EMP. You just need to be kind of in, you know, the general geography. And, uh, and missile defense is important because obviously we have the capacity with missile defense to shoot down these missiles before they arrive. And that's why we have to work on how we're going to defend against hypersonic missiles, because historically we've, uh, you know, developed defenses that are quite capable against, if you will, more traditional uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. They can, for example, have uh, decoys built into them. They can change directions and other things, and we have the capacity to overcome those decoys and to overcome and, and, and track the, the movement and so forth. Um, but uh, the hypersonic uh, is a new wrinkle that we have to make sure we upgrade our defensive capabilities so that we can shoot that missile down. And, you know, the, an EMP isn't likely to be, like during the Cold War, our big fear was that the, uh, our opponents might, uh, you know, send uh, 500 missiles in our direction. And how could you really shoot down 500 missiles? You know, a couple of them are going to get through. An EMP attack wouldn't likely be that kind of attack. Um, it would like, for one reason, it would be kind of obvious, and it would probably re- require an immediate retaliatory strike even before the MP things hit us. So they wouldn't be real excited about that. Um, it, they'd probably be a little stealthier than that. And they, uh, you know, Dr. Pry talked about how they could shoot the missile in a direction that it would come from an un an area of the world that we wouldn't expect it to be coming from and therefore don't have the same radar infrastructure and other things to track it. And so we have to work on these issues and realize that it's a little bit like plugging a dike. Once you've plugged one hole, 
um, you'll find other holes that need to be plugged because maybe the water level will go up a little bit and then six inches over you'll see there's a hole that didn't used to leak but now the water's a little higher because you plugged the one hole there's now new leaks and you have to constantly be making sure that the dike is is uh, functional and that you've repaired and uh, and guard against the risk I think sometimes we think in terms of oh yeah I think Reagan talked about missile defense. I think that's already been done. Why are we still talking about that? And it's just like, well, <laughs> one, he talked about it, but he wasn't able to get it all done. And two, that was a long time ago. And we have to defend against uh, ever greater risks because <laughs> the other side is developing new technologies and ways around those things. It's a little bit like the, the march of history. There was a time when you could build a castle. And the castle would defend you from the invading hordes that would come to do harm to you and your people. And then someone developed things like, you know, gunpowder and cannons, which could slowly demolish the said castle. And so you had to do something else to defend the castle because just having stone walls wasn't enough anymore. And that's just how it's always worked. So we have to understand that reality and that that process is at a much faster pace now. Okay, let me ask you a quick, quick question here. Yeah, there's a couple of questions here that I want to follow up, Larry, before uh, I'm going to kind of follow up because, uh, like I say, a couple of years ago, you wrote this, you wrote a piece, uh, Frontier Missile Defense, too important to leave for chance. And you, and you made some, and, and some of the things you talk about, what we have presently, the technology and the differential. So first of all, Kind of talk about ground-based mid-course defense. You know, what's, what is that? Sure. Um, we have a couple. We have a base in California and one in Alaska. And this is a, um, a defense that's designed to knock down intercontinental ballistic missiles. It does it in the mid-course, meaning that it's uh, when, it, when the missile's kind of in the stratosphere. If you were to draw an arc like the McDonald's arches, and, and, and imagine that's the trajectory of a missile when it's launched, say, from, uh, you know, somewhere in Asia. It, you know, goes up into space and, and then skims along there and then comes back in. And the, in, with mid-course missile defense, they hit it kind of at that high arc po- point. And, um, and it is a, um, it's a kinetic missile, meaning or the impact is kinetic. So we don't send up just like an explosive device and blow it up in the general vicinity of the missile. It's so accurate in its tracking that we actually just slam a, um, a tip of the uh, missile defense. You know, the, the, the kill vehicle is just a guidance system that is essentially a battering ram. And at a closing speed of about 15,000 miles an hour, it slams into the warhead and destroys the warhead, which is a sweet spot on the missile that's a little bit larger than a basketball. So imagine hitting something that size that's at a speed of closing speed of 15,000 miles an hour. It's a lot of technology. It's not an easy task, but um, you know that's an important um, defense. Um, the problem, of course, is the other side's trying to find ways to to defeat it. And they, they did do some of that. They, for example, built missiles that once you fired them, they would shoot off decoys and things that looked like missiles, but weren't so that you wouldn't know which one to shoot down because one would just be a harmless, you know, prop. And then others would have a nuclear warhead in them. And so we developed a system that is able to detect which ones are real and which ones are fake. 
and um, and then they develop this. You know, normally missiles just kind of fire and go in a straight line or you know in a trajectory, and they you can't really steer them like a plane normally. But then some of our uh, adversaries have developed missiles that have some capacity for steering, so as to make it harder to hit them. And we, of course, again, develop technology. So I would argue what we have to do is look at what the risks are and look ahead at what the risks will be and be prepared to be developing those defenses and not simply check something off our list. You know, it's a little bit like being a... Yeah, go ahead. The, the other quick question I have, because there's two other technologies you bring up in this article. Uh, and let me, let me get them right here. Aegis was one, e, uh, A-E-A-G-I-S, and C-H-A-A-D. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then there's also talk about. You know, we're getting down so the weeds about, here a little bit, guys. <clears throat> yeah, no, we're getting so, the weed, but the weed is important because he's because the point I'm going to make, you know, the point we can make here, just like we talk about hardening, a lot of this technology dealing with defense is already available. It's a case of the will to do it. And these are just simply steps that we could take. You know, maybe we, uh, and that's well, my view. Uh, what do you think? Uh, okay, let me put it this way. Uh, George, uh, we'll, the technology is there. How about the will to actually put it in mass production? Your thoughts, and then we'll go to Larry. Well, I think that is absolutely correct. Uh, Senator Malcolm Wallop, who's the founder of our organization, Fringes of Freedom, always used to argue that we had the capacity to develop a robust missile defense. But what we seemed to lack was the political will to do so. From an engineering perspective, we could do it. From a financial perspective, from a technology perspective, all of those things, we could do it. The question was, would we bother to? And, um, and I think that's an important lesson in life. And it's a, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's real. And so you have um, sometimes people wonder, why do you have mid-course defense? And why do you have an, an Aegis uh, system as well? And they basically are designed to, against different sorts of, of uh, missiles. In other words, different missiles look differently. So you defend against, if I were coming at you with a knife, a shield or armor might be helpful. If I'm shooting a bazooka at you, I don't think a shield would do you much good. You know, and so you develop defenses that are designed to defend you against the, uh, the, the risk. And uh, the Aegis system is designed against uh, intermediate-range ballistic missiles, whereas the mid-course defense system is designed to stop intercontinental ballistic missiles. And, um, and, so, and then, of course, we've all seen, like, the Patriot missile batteries that were used to defend, uh, you know, Israel uh, during the Gulf War and uh, the dramatic, uh, you know, intercepts that we saw there. And those were – and that's designed to, to intercept uh, short-range uh, missiles. So there's different sorts of things. You couldn't shoot down a Scud missile with uh, mid-course defense because it's designed to shoot things up that are in the stratosphere and a scud missile never gets that high, you know? And so, so the point is sometimes I've had people say, well, this is so wasteful of all these different systems. They do the same thing. And it's kind of like, well, actually they don't, (laughs) they do different things. And, um, and I, and, and so I think it's important that we understand that reality and, and, and keep our defenses sharpened as it were. And at their tip top, um, capacity to keep us safe well the part of part of the problem 
that we're now facing, though, is that <clears throat> the uh, instrument of destruction is not a uh, a physical thing like like a uh, like a bomb or, or a rocket or any, it's a, it's a, it's not, it's actually a, a radio wave and and we had and that, so our our nuclear uh, uh, our, our nuclear defense is 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 useless in in they've changed the whole name of the whole game uh, if you will of 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 uh, of war, warfare and conquest the the idea that, i mean if historically the whole idea of uh, having uh, of having a war was to acquire more uh, more territory and now we're not they're not talking about territory at all they're talking about destruction of the of the uh, population uh, by means that do not uh do not involve uh any uh troops or or any uh, anything anything uh, that's physical uh we I'd like to take up that uh, that uh, approach uh, after the break. Uh, we are listening to the uh, the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network. You might know me. I'm 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger is too close for us to ignore. So visit feedinamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, you can order my book, America at the Abyss, or America Survive, through barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com. Pre-order right now, and with case of barnesandnoble.com, if you pre-order... America of the Abyss, where Americans survive, with the code pre-order25, you get 25% uh, discount. You get a 25% discount. So get ready to do that. And don't forget, next week we'll be doing a totally different scenario here as far as broadcasting. We'll be on StreamYard.com. For more information, you can go to Donaldson Files Twitter, Donaldson Fire Getter, Donaldson Fire Par. Parler.com, Donaldson T. Files, for more information and links on how to get to both the Donaldson Files and the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom. All right, uh, go ahead. Let's follow up on that comment because that's a very good comment. George, what's your thoughts? Well, remind me exactly what we're what we're drilling down on. I want to make sure oh, I'm we not were, uh, we're, missing was, the mark. I was just making the point that that our our nuclear capability is uh, is not of any use in this case because uh, what they're the instrument of of, of conquest is uh, is uh, radio waves and and it's not it's not a physical thing that can be destroyed uh, you know like a bomb or, or a rocket. Uh, and it doesn't have any. <clears throat> it doesn't have any. Uh, it doesn't have that same kind of substance. And so what? Ha- so where we are is we're 
we're we're sitting here with all this great capability, and in fact, uh, by the way, apparently from what I'm hearing, uh, we don't even have a superiority in in missiles anymore. But uh, but uh, the and 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 the other the other issue, of course, is that we have a uh, administration that seems to think that. If the nicer we uh, we are to our enemies, the more uh, they're going to respect us. And of course, that's not the case with either of our <laughs> principal enemies. So you know, we we've got these guys out there, these these idiots, frankly, that that are that are simply unrealistic, and 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 they are in fact. I mean, we we could be we could this this uh, this problem that we're talking about could actually occur uh, any time in the next ninety days. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's it, it's it's that we we that is a, that is a, a a potential or a possibility that uh, the, the typical American is not even aware of. They know that, I think everybody that pays attention knows that we might have some problems with with the uh, Russians right now because of uh, Ukraine and, and uh, their, uh, dis, their, their dissatisfaction with the, uh, with NATO, but and then, then they got the the complication of what the Germans are are talking about and so on, uh, but that that's that's small potatoes compared to what the real real problem is. The real problem is we don't have any good deterrent. We we don't have any we don't have any any leverage in this whole thing, except the idea that uh, that uh, we can. Probably uh, assure these uh, people in uh, in the Russian uh, hierarchy that, that that they're going to have some suffering to do, but uh, they've got a lot of people and they don't care too much about uh, protecting them uh, individually. So I mean, this the, the whole game is different. It's not it's not the, the, not the Cold War anymore. It's 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 a very it's potentially a very dangerous war, and we're not on top of it. We're are we are not in in the in the in this same category of uh, power and prestige that that we had even a year ago. So, uh, I mean, the idea of of saying to the to the Russians, if you don't want, if you don't do what we want, or if you do what we don't want, if you don't, uh, if you decide to invade uh, the Ukraine, uh, we're going to uh, uh, send a, a, a kind of some kind of a wave that's, that's going to knock out your uh, your uh, electrical grid. Uh, and and we're saying that to somebody who's got a better better situation, a better uh, technology than we do, and could do it to us tomorrow, and would, and is unscrupulous, and and we're 
and then they say, well, we've got all these people that we if we're, we're going to we're going to uh, challenge you on uh, take away your your banking uh, capabilities with the uh, Swiss interchange and the dollar and uh, lock out lock you out of all the uh, banks in the world uh, and and they say okay you do that and we're going to we will knock you out of the 20th uh, 21st century i mean this 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 whole thing is is it's extremely it's extremely dangerous and and nobody seems right. to know it to, to, i mean the, the people in charge don't seem to have any idea about this yeah, it's very frustrating because if you think about, um, you mentioned knocking us out of the 21st century, and just to make it clear, they wouldn't be knocking us back to the 20th century. They'd be no. knocking us back to the 19th or the 18th century in terms of technology. And our society isn't designed for that to work. Our population densities, um, you know, it's one thing if you've, you know, go back in time, when there were 13 colonies, most people grew their own food and, and had, uh, you know, close access to those kinds of things. We were very non-densely populated. Even our biggest cities were, you know, not that, you know, populated. It just wasn't an issue. So that kind of, but in today's world, if you don't have water and power and refrigeration and the ability to transport things, basically people are going to be uh, just in some very awful situations. And uh, uh, you're right about the, um, the right now at least, the R Russia probably sees itself as having closed the gap and they have some advantages now that they didn't used to have. And so I would argue that they probably feel a certain opportunism to do something with that advantage because they may say to themselves, if we do nothing and then they get their act together, we will have lost the, the advantage. And my guess is they don't want to lose the advantage, not because they're afraid we're going to attack them and try to uh, you know, dominate them, but because they're afraid that um, their options and their prestige and their ability to dominate the world would be limited if we are um, – you know, if we're incapacitated, if, excuse me, if we come back from our level of incapacity and it gotten a little smarter. So I feel like there's a lot we have to do and a lot that we have to wake up to. And I'm a little frustrated that there's not greater urgency among the leaders because they ought to know better. They ought to see this and realize this is a rough place to be and they better do something about it. It's not only that, but here's the other side. Here's the other side. Here's a, a very interesting. This <clears throat> was a story a couple of days ago, and mm -hmm. this shows you adding to the vulnerability to everything you guys have brought up is okay. There have been talks between the U.S. and the Kremlin to avoid. Okay, da da da. All right. Now, interesting yeah. enough is Russian crude exports to the United States highlights problems from Biden. In other words. We're actually increasing more, exporting, you know, importing more gas and oil from the Russians than even Saudis, the Saudi Arabians. And you yeah. can, you know, which is crazy as well get out because yeah. a year ago we didn't need to do that. Yeah, exactly. And you compound that. This is that entirely self-imposed craziness. 
faces. And on top of that, the Germans, who basically have crippled their own coal industry, crippled their own nuclear energy, and now are basically becoming dependent, are going to end up becoming more mm-hmm. dependent on Russia, which explains their behavior in all of this, because they're basically saying, eh, you know, yeah. Eh, yeah, the Ukraine, whatever. You know, it's like, uh, you know, we need to be friends with the Russians because they're already in Putin's hands as far as energy goes. In other words, you look at every policy, you look at everything this administration has done in the past year, whether it's energy policy, defense policy, mm-hmm. and put us in a position where, you know, we weren't even there last year. We're not there this year. I mean, we're, I mean, I mean, we're sitting there trying to tell the Europeans, we'll figure out a way to get energy to you if the Russians cut you off. And here we are, and we're and we're dependent. We're becoming more dependent upon the Russians. This is insanity. Right. Right. This is not sustainable. We, you know, the, the crazy thing about this whole energy policy is, it's it's bad enough that the average American is paying substantially more at the pump to fill their tank and to heat their home and to you know run their uh, refrigerators and other electrical devices or even to charge their car now. All of that costs a great deal more, and none of that's real helpful. It's a big tax on an economy when uh, things are rough. But you know what's even worse is that we have basically – we're now sending that increased price. Not only are we paying more, we're sending that increased price to our enemies for them to use to fund to try to bury us sure. as uh, – as their communist leaders once famously said, we'll bury you. And, um, you know, so I think we've got to wake up and recognize that energy independence wasn't just about national pride. It wasn't just about getting cheap gas. One thing people forget is that it wasn't just missile defense that helped defeat the Soviets. Ronald Reagan understood that if he could drive the price of oil down, he would deprive them of the money because they don't really have a robust economy. Their economy is unduly um, dependent upon oil exports. And there's simply no reason when we have such great energy reserves, even greater than theirs, to voluntarily say, you know what, we'd like for you to be in charge. That's just stupid. Well, yeah, yeah. And yet that's no, our no, policy. No, but here's a, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I, to me, the best description of what you just stated was I, I read this today. Russia is a gas station on top, you know, a nation on top of a gas station. That's yeah. Russia. Yeah, no, that's their economy. And it's one reason why they were not historically um, able to keep up with us in the Cold War was because they didn't have the economic might to, to do battle with us. And so militarily, they also lost out. But I think one of the things we have to recognize is our policies ought not make it so that they have advantages economically. And that, that, you know, the Russian people aren't bad people, but Putin and his oligarchs are. And they have bad intentions. And their goal is to dominate. We see that with what they're doing with Ukraine. The reality is they would do that with us if they thought they could get away with it. And they may well think they can at some point. And if we keep the current policies in place and keep on moving in this direction, they'll get there. And we have to, you know, shame yeah. on us. 
Well, they'll get there. They'll get there in the next ninety days if they want to. Right. I mean that. I mean this is imminent. This is this is not, you know, strategic. We've got to get to beyond strategic. <laughs> strategic. We've got to get to tactics and 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 implementation, and and we don't have anybody who's trying to do that. I, I don't see anybody in the in the government that even acknowledges the the the, the problem we've got, and that yeah, is no, what is really really concerning. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that, and and this is dire. And yet, like it, you know, I think we alluded to earlier, it isn't that complicated to get it right, and it's not that yeah. expensive. I'm not saying it's cheap. But it's not insanely expensive. Um, this isn't like building a missile defense system where you're trying to hit something, uh, you know, at a closing speed of 15,000 miles an hour. This is actually, you know, a little simpler in the sense that you can harden the grid and you can uh, work on these things and take the defenses we already have and upgrade them and, and improve them and, and get where you want to go. We're not starting from ground zero. But but I, I just don't understand why there isn't more urgency. Yeah. Well we may we may if 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 things go against us we, we, we may pay a terrible price for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well let me ask the book. Yeah, let me ask yeah, 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 let me ask the book of the cards because here's where we're at. Is you you know you know, on one side of the equation we've some you know, we've had an agreement to secure the security of Ukraine, like from a 1994 agreement, if they gave up their nuclear weapons, which they did. So that's a mistake that I think maybe they should have rethought. <laughs> but yeah. uh, uh, but here's the thing. I mean, half, I mean, half of the Ukraine is already in Russian's hands. The Crimea is already in Russian hands. And... Mm-hmm. And my question, you throw out 100,000 troops you know, and march right into the Ukraine. What exactly are we going to do to stop it once they decide to make that decision? I mean, because other than, I mean, you look at the countries that are closest, Poles, the Czechs, uh, you know, those are your military forces. And, and certainly the Germans have already demonstrated they're not going to jump out and put their troops on the firing line. So the question I got to ask is, what's the alternative? I mean, what are you going to do if you're Joe Biden? How far do you go once they cross that line, or they say they cross the Rubicon and do it and stick their nose out and say, "Okay, stop it." They're not going well, to. They're yeah, not I think the real. Yeah, I think the real only, fear they're here. Not, they're not only not going to stop it; they're not. <clears throat> they're not even going to be able to. Um, to uh, punish these guys after they after they do uh, do the, do after they do this, I mean it's it's all they're just not in a position to be able to actually influence this thing in in advance or or even after it happens, and it's gonna it's so what's going to happen in my opinion is that. Biden will say he'll say, "Okay, we're gonna we're going to uh, uh, get tough," and they say they're gonna thumb their nose at us and say, uh, 
uh, well, okay, uh, you let's see what you got. And uh, they're going to go ahead and they're going to invade and then he's going to come up empty. But, because he hasn't got any choice. Yeah. Well, I think, that, yeah, the bottom line is short of, let's say, economic sanctions and how devastating yeah, but, those economic sanctions be. I mean, that's yeah, what but, I mean, that's but then, then he's got to fight the Germans. The Germans yeah. are not going to go along with that. You know yeah. what? Well, we're just about out of we're just about out of time, and we haven't solved the world's problems yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think um, I I hope that whoever's listening has uh, uh, gotten some some level of of the of the uh, at least appreciation of the problem, and and what as George says about uh, holding the uh, People that want to uh, have our votes here and coming up and and uh, and even now, uh, you know, this is an area that they have to that they really have to get. Uh, we, we we want everybody to become aware of. So yeah. I guess we're going to have to say uh, uh, good night and God bless America because we surely need it.